Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. We've um, talked about it here a number of times, and I'm going to talk about it again. It's these two terms, authority and identity. Authority and identity. These are the two critical issues of our culture of our day and for the next 50 years. So over the coming months and years, you will hear me talking about authority and identity. Authority meaning why do you believe what you believe? What's the basis of your belief system? And identity is who are we? What does it mean to be human? How do we know how to live? Um, this morning, just thinking as we start about the idea of identity, our culture, this is just a reminder, you guys know this, we've talked about it. Our culture says to figure out who you are, your identity, to find yourself, you need to look inside yourself. And, and find out what you desire. What do you want? And do what you want. Be who you want to become. That's what we say, right? Find your true and authentic self and be happy. That's really the goal. But what if you look inside yourself and you really don't like who you are? Or 
if life, life circumstances, the things that have happened to you in life, the things you've done, crush you with shame and guilt. Mary Magdalene was just such a person. Inside and out, whether she looked inside of herself or looked at people around her, she was filled with shame and fear. If she was going to develop a, a, an identity based on herself, looking inside or looking even outside, she would be completely crushed. But then she met Jesus, and she was set free. She was, found safety, and she found belonging. And she wanted to hold on to it as tight as she could. And yet, there was more of Jesus than she realized. There was an unshakable identity and an eternal hope that he was offering her, and she wasn't fully aware of it. We begin in verse 1. Verse 1 is the part that we read last week. It's the opening of the Easter story in the Gospel of John. And we read this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So the first question is just a very basic one. What are we looking at here? Why does Mary go to the tomb? What compelled her to go to the tomb of somebody who had been executed and crucified, right? Well, on, on a very just kind of proper Jewish level, she was doing the right thing in honoring a rabbi in her community who had been killed. It was what you do with a dead body. You go and you honor it. You do the finishing things with the, the body. She was doing the proper thing. And so on one level, she goes to the tomb that day expecting to do what she was going to do, which is essentially like the follow-up to the funeral. The, this is what you do. You kind of inter the body. But we also know this. Mary goes to the tomb in spite of the fact that Jesus had been executed as a criminal because Mary was kind of fearless at this moment. She was one of the women who had stood by Jesus at his crucifixion. Literally, in, in John 9, 19, it says she and two other women stood by the cross. And that meant, like, the cross was right there. Not, hey, I'm way over here hiding. It was standing right there as Jesus was being executed, tortured. The disciples fled. Mary stays right there at the foot of the cross. She's a woman of courage, and she's devoted to Jesus, absolutely loyal to him. She loved him. And in this moment, she needs Jesus. Jesus had changed her life, and she needed him, and she just needed to at least finish honoring him. She wanted to bury him, but the tomb's empty. And so she gets absolutely frantic. She's desperate and frantic, and we see this in verse after verse of this same section as she repeats this same refrain. In verse 2, we read that she then ran, she went and ran to go find Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Somebody's taken his body. We don't know who. Then the disciples come running. They see the tombs empty, and they leave, but Mary stays there. She's there just outside the tomb, and she looks back in, and we read in verse 11, Mary stood weeping, just grieving, just heartbroken, outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them the same thing she told Simon Peter. They've taken my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. 
Having said this, we read in verse 14 and 15, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I, and I will take him from you. She just wants to honor Jesus. <laughs> but she's blinded by her grief and despair in this moment, right? It's like a mother who has lost her child, just completely broken. Jesus, remember, as we think about it, Jesus had been the source of hope and joy in her life. And, and he was brutally murdered right in front of her eyes. And she can't even bury him. The tragedy has happened her life is unraveling. Jesus, who had been her kind of savior, protector, is gone. She can't even bury him. But what's interesting is what Jesus says to her in verse 15. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So Mary... What's strange is this. What's strange is this. Mary sees the empty tomb and sees everything there and doesn't even consider that Jesus might be alive. Doesn't even consider that he might be risen from the dead. Now, Mary was one of the close disciples. According to Luke 8, she was one of the band of women who followed Jesus around along with the 12. So she's there pretty much all the time for a good amount of his ministry as far as we know. And in the final weeks of Jesus' life, do you know what Jesus said again and again to the disciples, including the women like Mary Magdalene? We are going to Jerusalem. I will be handed over to the chief priests and the authorities. They will execute me, and on the third day, I will rise again. A little bit later on, a couple days later, same thing. I am going to Jerusalem. I will be killed. On the third day, I will rise again. He says it again and again. She had heard that refrain. Why did it not even occur to her? When she goes there and the tomb is empty, and not just that, but the burial linens, okay, the burial linens that were there, those things would not be left behind if somebody had just taken a body. So this is actually one of the evidences that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, the burial linens were expensive. If somebody, there were such things as grave robbers in that day, but what you did when you robbed a grave is you took the linens. You might not take the dead body. Because the linens were also wrapped in embalming ointments, a hundred pounds of embalming ointments we read. This is incredibly expensive in that day and age. So the embalming ointments, the linens, you take those, not the dead body, if you're a grave robber. If, on the other hand, you're one of the authorities or a, a Jewish leadership and you want to take the body, you keep it wrapped up. You don't want a naked dead body especially one that had been brutally crucified. You want it wrapped like the mummy. We'll take it that way. But there they are laying there, neatly laid out, folded. Why doesn't she see that and think, I wonder if, like he said 12 times over the past week, that he's risen? She literally steps out of the tomb that's empty, goes and tells the disciples, the, Peter and John come, they run, they see it's empty as well. They leave, she turns around, there's two angels in there, people as far as she can tell. Where did they come from? How did they get past her? But she doesn't suspect anything. And then she turns around and sees Jesus, the one who she's been looking for, the one she just saw crucified 48 hours earlier. 
She doesn't recognize him. Where, where have they taken him? I don't know. She cannot see who is standing right in front of her because she's looking for something else. A dead body. She had a view of what she was looking for. And Jesus was more than what she assumed. I don't know about you, if you're the kind of person who struggles with doubt. A lot of people do. Struggle with believing that Jesus is the Christ, rose from the dead. Or struggle with connecting with him. Like you say you believe in God, but, but you've tried to experience him. You've never really experienced him. You wonder, like, is something wrong with you? Is it possible that, like Mary Magdalene on that first day, that you're looking for a version of Jesus, one that you've designed in your head, or the one you desire, the Jesus to answer your prayers your way? We all do that. We come to Jesus. We come to God. We say, okay, if you exist, here's something I need. Show me. Answer. The problem is, if Jesus is risen, he doesn't allow us to design him, to cast him in our desires. If he's risen, then he's Lord. And that's the problem we all have. Do you know we all have a bias against Jesus being risen, not just because we don't believe dead bodies can rise. We all have a bias internally because if Jesus is actually risen, then he is actually Lord of the universe. And if he's Lord of the universe, you lose control. You lose control in how you live your life. You lose control in the prayers you pray. You're no longer Lord, but he is. And our internal bias, because we're all this way, don't like that. We want to maintain control. We want a Jesus that we can handle. Jesus says to her, and he might as well be saying to us, whom are you seeking? The real Jesus or something else? And then he says this phrase, Um, in the midst of this whole conversation, which seems a bit strange, but occasionally Jesus does some strange things. He says to Mary, who he he calls out her name, and she realizes it's him. She cries out, Rabbi, and then probably just like throws herself on him in a hug with weeping and, you know, like just the tears streaming down. and, And he says to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. It seems a little harsh, a little, you know, like, Can't he just hug her back? Can't he see the grief and the joy that she has? But he says, do not cling to me. And the the phrase there, the the word cling to me, is literally touch, grab, hold of, okay? So it's, it's don't grab hold of, touch me, or something like that. But what Jesus is not saying, what Jesus is not saying is, um, I'm so holy now that I'm risen, stay away, like the burning bush or something. And and in some ways we know this because um, one of the other accounts of the resurrection says that some of the women who, when they saw Jesus risen, they fell at his feet, grabbed his feet, and worshipped him. And he doesn't say, get off of my feet. And in the very next day, when, or later on in the week, when Thomas needs to see him and he appears in the upper room, we're, we're going to see this next week, Jesus says, come here, touch me. Go ahead, touch me. You can grab hold of me. You can hold on to me. I'm here. But with Mary Magdalene, he says, do not cling to me. I think what Jesus is saying is, look, 
Mary, you've been afraid to let me out of your sight since, you, since I first set you free and you first started following me. But you do not need me physically next to you anymore. You have already been set free. You are no longer Satan's. You are my daughter. You do not need me physically next to you anymore. But Mary is clinging to him. Why? Because he sees what's underneath the clinging, the physical clinging, is fear inside of Mary. And I think we have to stop and and project back on what had Mary Magdalene experienced before she met Jesus. What did her life look like before that? We don't know a lot about Mary Magdalene, and some, uh, you know, the church texts suggest that there was certain things about her, but the one thing we know from Luke 8 is that she was, uh, her name was Mary Magdalene, and she had been previously possessed by the demonic. And one of the things that I don't want us to uh, run over too quickly is her, her name. Her name is Mary Magdalene. Magdala was a place, it was a city, a town, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, a fishing town. This is where she's from. That's why she's Mary Magdalene, like Jesus of Nazareth, right? But the unusual thing is that women in that day and age were not identified by their place. They were identified by the male in their life. That's just the way it was. So you were identified by the daughter of some man, the wife of some man, okay? The sister of, like Martha and Mary, the sisters had their brother Lazarus. They were the sisters of Lazarus, right? Or even by your son, your oldest son, if your husband had died. And we get this in John 19, 25. At the foot of the cross, standing by the cross, were Jesus' mother, so that's Mary, and his mother's sister, also named Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then another Mary, Mary Magdalene. So just look at those three right there. Mary, the famous Virgin Mary, right? She was Mary, Joseph's wife, until Joseph died. Once Joseph is dead, she then assumes the relational connection to her oldest son, who is Jesus. So from then on, Mary is identified not as Mary of Bethlehem, but as Mary the mother of Jesus. And then Jesus' aunt is also there. And she's identified not just as Jesus' aunt, but also the wife of Clopas. Who's Clopas? We don't know. But that's how you would identify her. And then there's Mary Magdalene of the city of Magdala with no family associated with her. So what's that backstory? How old was she when she was orphaned? No husband? No son, no brothers. In a culture that needed a male to have legal status and protection, she had none. So she not only didn't have belonging in family, she had no way to earn a living. She had no protection in a court of law. She was completely and totally vulnerable. She had no, as as we learn in the story of Ruth, that Boaz, this, this man in, in a city far away, was a kinsman redeemer, a near relative whose duty it was to protect the female relatives who had lost husbands or fathers. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer of Ruth and Naomi. But Mary Magdalene has no kinsman redeemer. What did her life look like for these decades of loneliness? And on top of that, we learn in Luke 8, that she was possessed by seven demons, is what it says, that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. 
The commentators all note that seven in a biblical and Hebrew understanding means complete or perfect, like God created in seven days or six days and then rested on the seventh. So it's not necessarily she literally had seven demons cast out of her, but rather she was wholly and completely possessed. She was demon-possessed wholly and completely. So she lived in a constant state of absolute suffering through severe emotional and psychological trauma, completely in bondage to Satan. Okay, so now think about her life, whether she's 15 or 25 or 30 at this point, she's all alone, she's possessed by the demonic, and how do people treat her? Completely vulnerable woman who was crazy, anybody could do anything they wanted to her. The story of Legion, or the man who was possessed with a legion of demons in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke says that he was forced to live out by the tombs. He was possessed by, a, a, he completely possessed like she was, and he lived naked, and he cut himself with rocks and stones and ate grass and whatever the wild, he was a, an animal. And if he came near the village, they would chase him away with rocks. Was this her experience? We don't know. But Jesus sets her free from the demonic, and she becomes a disciple of his. Jesus maybe had been the only man in years who neither took advantage of her nor despised her and hurled insults at her, but instead healed her, freed her, forgave her, assured her of God's love for her in spite of her past. With Jesus, she probably for the first time in decades felt safe literally just safe. He was her kinsman redeemer. Why does she cling to him? <laughs> He's the only hope she's ever known. Some of us in here have deep wounds. Deep wounds and pain, things that have been a part of our past that create great fear and anxiety. Many of us in our current age live with anxiety and fear, a fear of our kids, fear of our health, fear of our future. We live assuming the worst, trying to control outcomes. And living into fear and even the shame of our past is living in a false identity. And Mary was wrestling with that in that moment, and Jesus saw that. You were, you were trying to fall back into your false identity. You were not that person anymore. Jesus is trying to tell her and do not cling to me the very thing that he had said in the upper room and she had probably been there in John 16, 33 when Jesus said, look, in this world you're going to face tribulation and suffering but take heart, which means do not fear. Have courage, do not fear. I have overcome the world. Jesus says there and Jesus is saying to her, my resurrection and ascension are proof that the worst that happens in this world, the evil that men can do to other men, the suffering that you can endure, and even death itself does not win. I have won, and that is the reason you have no reason to fear. No matter what happens to you in this life, I have overcome the world, you will win, because I have won. Jesus tells her in verse 17, don't cling to me because I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He's basically saying, look, I, I get why you're afraid. You're afraid, you're afraid to lose me. 
but I'm never leaving you. And if I go, if I ascend, then through the Holy Spirit, you can have an intimacy and fellowship with me that you will never lose. Look, if I don't ascend, if I'm just walking around here, you can lose me. I, you know, like I could die, right? Or you could get locked in prison. And I can't be with you if you're locked in prison, Mary. But if I ascend to the Father, no matter where you are, whatever dark dungeon or horrible place, I can be with you. I am with you in your suffering, in your body breaking down. I am with you in your loneliness. I am with you in your fears. I'm with you at night and I'm with you in the day. I will never leave you. In Ephesians 2, which we said as one of our, um, is, is our confession of faith, our creed today, the declaration is that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us at the right hand, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, God might show the, the riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ. Something has happened when you put your faith in Christ that we are, we are in some way brought up into union with the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, in a way that we cannot ever lose Christ. And he wants us to know the fellowship of connecting with the God who is risen. Union with Christ is where we are going to know the full and complete fellowship, but already we can have a foretaste of that. And that's what we are looking to cultivate in our lives. That's why we take time to listen, to learn how to be with Christ. And as we are, what Jesus is saying to us and what what Paul is saying here is that our deepest longings of our heart can be satisfied, our greatest fears driven away. What we truly desire deep down in can be met. You know, my own experience is that when I get anxious or fearful, usually about the future, what ends up happening is that my brain spirals, right? I think of the worst case scenarios, but I just keep chewing on the same things. And even my prayers become desperate and more like, you know, Jesus, let me find your your dead body, like Mary. But when I stop and I seek Christ and remember that he has risen and that I am his by grace, when I lean into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, I find that the Lord speaks through peace and perspective, through the assurance, the joyful hope that Jesus is Lord, that all of my worries and fears he knows, and he is still truly Lord of all things. And I can hand over my kids or my future or my life or somebody else, this church, whatever I'm anxious about in this moment, as I cultivate that listening presence of the risen Christ. Jesus is inviting her into this. But he does it with a very direct re-identification for her. We get in verse 15, 16, sorry. Jesus says to her, Mary. So she doesn't know who it is, can't figure out who's standing there, the gardener, like, what have you done with his body? And then he says, Mary. Or maybe it was more just like, Mary. And she gets, Rabbi, it's you. She hears his, her name, just her name, the very personal name. The one that she had been as a little girl, named by her parents, Mary, before they died, right? And very different than the names probably she'd been called by the citizens of Magdala for years. Crazy woman, that homeless woman, the possessed woman. 
Very different than the voices, the, the name she called herself. He was identifying her as, as a person, a worthy person, and on top of that, his sister, his daughter. He gives her that name, which is her name, to just say, I see you and this is your identity, not those other things that you're fearful of. Much like how Jesus calls Simon Peter, right? So Simon is his birth name, but then he says, you're now Peter. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But then what does Peter do? Peter betrays Jesus. He's a coward. Peter probably wrestled with that similarly. Like, am I really just the betrayer, the denier, the coward? I'm supposed to be a rock. I don't know how to do this. And then Jesus says, Mary, I have a plan for you. Go and tell the disciples that I am risen and ascending. Go and tell the disciples that I am risen and ascending. This is Mary being called to live out of her true identity. Not out of the false narratives she had lived in in her past. Not out of those names she had told herself that were her true identity. That false identity. He said, Mary, I have a plan for you. Go and tell. And what's amazing about this is that she is not only the first Christian, but the first witness to the resurrection. So think about it. A Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus Christ is crucified and risen. She is the very first person to believe Jesus Christ is crucified and risen. And then the first witness to the resurrection, the first ambassador of Jesus to the rest of the disciples. That is the grace of the gospel, that the God of the universe would choose the first Christian and the first witness to be a reformed mental patient and not a leader in the community, not somebody of influence. In other words, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you've done or what has been done to you. Jesus wants you to live into your true identity and calling. Each of us is made by God as his unique image bearer. In Genesis, we learn that we are made in the image of God, but each one of us is uniquely designed, uniquely designed to reflect God. That's why we need all sorts of people to really get a fuller glimpse of who God is. But you and I are uniquely designed to be his image bearer. There's a unique identity that we are to live into and called to live out of because God wants to build his kingdom through you, through me uniquely, each of us. In Ephesians 2, which we did as our creed, the end of it is that phrase, that famous phrase, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. That word workmanship, some of you guys have heard this, means artistic masterpiece. This is, for an artist who paints paintings, this is his greatest piece. God is saying to us, through Paul here, you, you, amongst all my art, you are my masterpiece. He says that of every one of us, but he means that we are God's absolute masterpiece. That's the identity he wants us to rest in and live out of. And then I have designed you to do good works. And that word good works is not just like go and do like all sorts of nice things you're supposed to do. It's the implication of the whole description here is of when when God had designed the temple to be built in the Old Testament, and there were different artisans and different people who like cut rock, who designed the archaeology, who wove the tapestries, and you were supposed to do your part in building the temple, 
And if you were a, a stonemason or if you were an architect or if you were an embroiderer or somebody who worked in gold, like you were actually a part of designing the temple one little bit, but God had a plan. God has a plan for this creation and you are a part of the creation being built into his image. Each one of us designed to live out our identity and calling by grace. But instead, you know what we do? We don't live out of our true identity in Christ. We live it out, out of our false identities. The lies that we believe about ourselves. Mary wrestling in fear at the empty tomb is going back to, am I just crazy? Am I just that woman that's all alone in this world? Much like Peter hiding, feels like I'm just a coward. I'm not a rock. What are the names you call yourself? The lies that Satan repeats in your head in that inner dialogue about the things that you've done and feel guilty about? Even though you've been forgiven, you, you, he brings it back. Or the shame you have because of things done to you. Jesus never talks to anyone in their false identity. Jesus will not be speaking to you in your false identity. He calls you in your true identity, who he has designed and made you to be. Mary, my ambassador. Not crazy lady of Magdala. <laughs> Jesus is saying to Mary in these moments, Mary, I see, I see the little girl who used to feel safe, who did not know loneliness or fear or the torment of Satan, or the abuse of others. And I'm calling not only that little girl, Mary, but I'm calling the woman I created you to be. The one who had the faith to believe in me in the first place. The one who had the courage to stand by the cross when everyone else ran away. The one who is devotedly loyal and has capacity for great love. This is who you truly are, Mary. You are Mary, the courageous and faithful my sister, my witness. And she goes and runs and tells. Mary did not need to find herself. She needed to be found. You and I will never know who we are fully or why we're here unless we know God and what he says of us, which basically means until we know Jesus, the real Jesus, risen ascended, and Lord. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come to you again. We come to you again in the hope of the resurrection, in communion with Jesus. We live in a constant battle of our false identities, the lies we tell about ourselves, the lies we believe that others tell us, the things done to us or that we've done, driven by our fears. But you call us to be the men and women you have designed us to be. You have names for us, callings for us. In the next 30, 60 seconds, speak to us, Lord. We open ourselves to you in union with Christ. Whatever those false names you believe about yourself, give them to Jesus. They are not who you are. We ask you now, speak to us, Lord.
Who do you say that I am? What word or image, what phrase, what adjective do you give to me? Who are you calling me to be? Courageous. Rock. Daughter. Speak to us, your people, Lord. As we reflect and pray and sing. Amen.